Good morning. Well, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your spirit will join us this morning, fill us with uh, love and truth. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly Growing in Christ, and the title this week is Ch- The Church, Rites and Rituals. Rites and Rituals. And the key thought, God has instituted ordinances that properly understood help to reinforce our faith. Now, what is the key to the key thought? As you read it, as you read the key thought, there's a key to the key thought. Properly understood. You guys nailed it. That's exactly right. Properly understood. What happens if the ordinances, rituals, and rites instituted by God are not properly understood? What's the problem? What happens? Pardon? I could, you couldn't get more succinct than that. You couldn't boil it down to the... To, she said, you kill his son on the cross. It's if, you, if, you, if you don't properly understand the, the rites, the rituals, and symbols, then you end up killing his son on the cross. A good example um, in Old Testament scripture is in Isaiah 1, starting in verse 10. And I want to read to you, if you want to follow along, Isaiah 1, starting in verse 10. We're going to go through 10 verses from 10 to to verse 20, and then I'm going to ask you to, to process what, what's being said, what's the message, what's going on here. Starting in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. And if you look at the context, uh, Israel has become apostatized, and he's referring to Israel as Sodom. So this is really about Israel, but he's just calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of, notice the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So it's the people of Israel speaking about here. The multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I can't bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And what wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they should be like wool. If you, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." What do you hear? It's quite profound. It really is quite profound. First couple of questions. Were the rituals they were doing listed in this passage made up on their own or were they instituted by God? The, 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 the Sabbath days, the feast days, the sacrifices, the fatted animals, did they come up with that on their own or did they get instructions from God to do that? Yeah, they came from God. What... Was God happy with them for performing the rituals that he instructed them to carry out? No. No. Why not? Because they did it their own way. Because, because why? They did it in their own way? They were meaningless. Yeah, they said, stop bringing meaningless sacrifices. It says, what, what does God not have pleasure in, in this passage? Shedding blood. Notice that. He does not have pleasure 
in the sacrifice of animals, the shedding of the blood of these animals. He did not bring him pleasure. What does God have pleasure in? It's, it's in the lesson. It's in the, it's in the section there, too. Doing justice. Doing justice. Doing what's right. Doing the right thing. What is it in the beginning of this section of Scripture that God calls the people to pay attention to? Pay attention to this. Do you remember? Right in the very beginning? The word of the Lord. Listen to the law of our God. Yeah, the word of the Lord, the law. Listen to the law. Pay attention to the law. What law? Law of what? The law of love. See, they, this had to be a mystery. Think, think through. You're an Israelite. You're one of these people back then. You're bringing your sacrifice. You've got the whole Torah. You've got the rules. You've got your hems at the right length. You've got all this stuff going on. I mean, you are, and he says, listen to the law. I said, what do you think I've been doing? Why am I here? I'm doing the law. They're not doing, they're not listening to the law. And it's not that much different than today. She said it's not that much different than today. Hmm. And then notice it calls them to action. After he talks to them about listening to the law, he calls them to an action, to do something in action. What's he call them to act, to do? The law of love. Two things. He calls them to two specific things that I could read, maybe more. Reason. Let us reason. To reason was one of the actions, and to do justice. To, to help the needy, to help the fatherless, to help the poor, to actually altruistically give to benefit another. So... Stop doing rituals while you ignore people. Come be reasonable with me and realize that my government is a, is a government of love and beneficence and start giving of yourself to help other people. I mean, this is what the passage is all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just looking. It says to reprove the oppressor. To reprove, yes, to, to, to confront and reprove the oppressor. Hey, um, you're doing something that's destructive, not only to the other person, but to you. Love you too much to stand by quietly while you destroy your own soul and sear your conscience. Hey, get right. You won't be so miserable. And what about the end, how it ends? Why will they be blessed if they obey, but be destroyed by the sword if they don't? Is God threatening them? That's how it's read. Hey, if you do it, you're going to be blessed. Well, that's good stuff. If you don't, the sword's going to nail you, buddy. Is that what's happening? Is it a threat? If a doctor says to a patient, hey, if you stop smoking, drinking, using IV heroin, and start eating healthy, exercise, loving God and others, you will get healthier, feel better, have less disease. But if you don't, you're going to die miserably. Is the doctor threatening? Isn't that what's happening here? Hey, if you do all this right stuff, you're going you're to be happy. You're going to be healthy. If you don't, you're going to walk away from me. I'm going to set you free. And other people are going to come along and kill you. When we think about rit- rituals and rites, what are some of the legitimate purposes of these types of ordinances? Legitimate purposes. Symbolism. Symbolism for what purpose? To, to achieve what? What end? What outcome? Why do it? To help us to understand better things that are going on um, with God's plan for us. So one purpose of these types of symbols, ordinances, rites, are, is a teaching tool. Right. To teach us something. For, yes. For doing it because it is required. Is that one of the legitimate purposes for doing it? At, at, the, at the Sinai, they said, we will do all the rules, but we don't want to listen to you. We, have, we don't want to have any fellowship with you. So that would not be, that would be an illegitimate reason yeah. to do it. Yes. So a legitimate reason to do it is teaching. What else? Healing. Healing. And expand on that for us. Worship. 
restoration and reconciliation? It's, it's, um, it's one, of, one of God's law, the law of worship. If we, if we emulate uh, that which we admire, we become more like Okay, so acting this out with an intelligent acting out, not a rote acting it out. So at, going through the motions, going through the ritual with an intelligent reasoning appreciation would have meaning to our neural net, whereas if we go through those same motions unintelligently by rote, it can actually darken the mind. So, okay, so to help us grow. How about group unity and cohesion? Do rituals bring people to a sense of unity and cohesion? If somebody is baptized, do you do you feel a sense in, into the church? Do you feel a, an immediate sense of their of belonging? They're part of us now. Whereas if they're not baptized, uh, even though you might love them, they're really not part of us. Does it, do, do rituals bring unity in, in a group? How about increased trust as adherents to various rituals communicate their intentions and commitments to the group that they're joining? So it, 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 a public ritual, the person has to you know, go through this act. It's a, it's a statement of intent. Does it give you a little more confidence in what they're planning to do? I like this one. How about change of mindset? Empowerment of the person. Mental health improvement, increased confidence, uh, internal commitment, drive, motivation. Does, does a ritual change the mindset of a person, enhancing their confidence, ability, motivation, these types of things? Does being knighted have an impact on the one who's knighted, on their mindset? Do they rise up, Sir Galahad? with a different attitude of how they experience themselves than they did before they were knighted. Do you think that would make a difference in their mindset? Anybody see the movie? Um, oh, what was that movie? Um, Kingdom of Heaven? Yes. In the movie Kingdom of Heaven, the, this is uh, kind of telling the, the times of the Crusades and Jerusalem was held by the Christians and it's being attacked by the, by the Muslims and, it's, and it's gonna, it's, it falls to the Muslims, uh, which was historically true. In this battle, there was this one knight who was defending the city to save the people. That was his mission. He wanted to help the people. And it's actually got really good themes through this, this movie. It talks about doing what's right for the people to protect them. Anyway... Um, one of, there was a there was a really cowardly priest who just wanted to tuck tail run leave uh, we had horses we a few of us can escape but the ma- masses of the people are going to be slaughtered if we do that but he's he's willing to do that and and the, and the knight who's in charge is unwilling to do this and the priest looks at him and says how can you defend this place you don't have any knights and he turns around the knight and he tells the 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 I don't know what what are those guys the squires or or just peasants he tells them to kneel. And he gives them the oath, and he tells them to rise knights. And in the movie, you can see they rise, and there's a there's a determination, and and and, and their whole attitude changes. And he says, to, and the priest looks to the to the to the guy who, who did this, and he says, "Do you think making them knights will make them better fighters?" And he said, "Yes." <laughs> and you could just see they they something changed in them. They weren't this this peasant anymore. They're a knight. Okay, and it changed their, so one purpose of ritual is it not to, to change an attitude, to, to change a mindset, to give a certain commitment or devotion to the individual. Does receiving a military commission and taking one's oath as office have any impact on that mindset? Well, anybody besides me have done that? Yeah, 
It does. Um, <clears throat> how much more if the ritual is also accompanied by a belief of divine empowerment? A review of 850 studies conducted during the 20th century on religious ritual and mental health found, quote, the majority of well-conducted studies found that higher levels of religious involvement are positively associated with indicators of psychological well-being, life satisfaction, happiness, positive affect, higher morale, with less depression, suicidal thoughts and behavior, drug, alcohol, use, and abuse. Usually the positive impact of religi- religious involvement on mental health is mo- more robust among people under stressful circumstances, the elderly and those uh, with disability and medical illnesses. If you're going through trying times, it has more of a positive effect on you. What about rituals improving the moral order in society? Do religious rituals improve social morality? It's one of the theories. An article, God's Rituals and Moral Order, in the Journal of Scientific Study of Religion, uh, published in 2001, found that in a study of 427 societies... Moral order was not improved when rituals were carried out, except in one circumstance. And this is how it looked. When moral order was improved, it was improved only when rituals were carried out by those who held a belief in a powerful, active, conscious, morally concerned God. What this means is the rituals were meaningless. (laughs) in and of themselves, to improve morality. It was the connection to an intelligent, moral, higher power that impacted, had positive impact on society. So when you divorce ritual, Isaiah, doing ritual that are meaningless, just doing the ritual for the ritual's sake, no longer connected to the intelligent, higher moral power, and look at the morality of that nation, where it went. Has it, have you been through any rituals in your life that impacted you? Nobody in here been through a ritual that's impact? Many been through a merit wedding ceremony? <laughs> did, did that ritual impact you? Yes, yeah. sure did. Baptism. Baptism, did that ritual impact you? Did you come up out of the water different? If not, maybe needs to be done again, huh? Huh. Graduation. Thank you. Uh, does it make a difference to graduate, to get the diploma handed to you? Does it change you in some way to actually go through that experience? Um, how is it different to get the education? Go to school, take all the classes, and be one music class short of the degree. <laughs> so you don't get the diploma, but you got the whole education. Is there something different about getting that music class and getting that diploma? Does something change when you get that? How are you different? You've got the same education. Does that diploma do something different in your sense of confidence, your sense of, of, of well-being? It does, doesn't it? Yes. But that depends on how that is handled. If somebody graduates and is told, now you are superior to everybody else, it's not constructive anymore, is it? Now you're super- I don't remember being told that in any of my graduations. Anybody go to graduation who said as the as the the chair of the or the uh, president of the university hands your diploma? Now that you've graduated from our university, you are superior to everyone else in society. Well, then in class, has anybody else told? Everybody had that experience? Yes, I do. I never had that. Uh-huh. No. So his point: if if a student cheated his way through college and got the diploma, that. Um, 
that can impact uh, the student in a different way. Okay. So you're, yes. So, yes. Yeah, I think I was making the distinction where you actually achieved your way all the way one class short. You've actually done the work. You've got the knowledge. And versus you've got the knowledge and the diploma. Does the actual diploma having earned the knowledge? But you're exactly right. If somebody were to cheat and get the diploma, well, that would actually impact them too because they would live in fear of discovery, fear of exposure. But your point was that if they're told that this diploma makes you better than other people, yes. does that impact them? Well, it would depend on whether they believe it or not. If they believe they're now better, that's right. Then it would impact them. Done during the during the graduation was done in class before. Hmm. So diploma, you can't get the job either. Even if you have bukus of learning, you still won't get the job. Yes. Yeah. There's truth in that too. Also, I think it though does make the mental impact. Sunday's lesson. Let's look to Sunday's lesson. First two paragraphs. It says during the early stages of Christian church, believers in the eastern part of the church were where Greek was the common language, used the word mysterion or mystery to describe Christian sacred rites. In the West, where Latin predominated, the term employed was sacrament, uh, Latin sacramentum. Uh, A sacramentum was an oath that a Roman soldier swore declaring his obedience to his commander's order. Those who employed this would... A word felt that it described accurately the nature of the sacred rites. With time, however, the idea came to represent an act with an inward, invisible power. The Church of the Middle Ages identified seven such acts called sacraments, which were, de- se- which were seen as means of infusing grace into a person's soul. During the Reformation, the sacraments came under scrutiny and criticism. In the minds of many, the term sacrament appeared to appeared tainted. A different term was felt to be in order, and that was ordinance. The word ordinance comes from the verb to ordain, which makes an ordinance a special act that Christ himself instituted or ordained. To prefer the term ordinance to sacrament is to say that one participates in the acts because they are the divinely ordained means for us to show our obedience and loyalty to Jesus as Lord. Seventh-day Adventists see baptism, foot washing, and the Lord's Supper as ordinances, acts that reveal our loyalty to Christ. They are symbolic ways of expressing our faith. I thought they did a fairly nice job of of giving a little history of the language and breaking down these concepts. Um, What do you understand the difference between the common use in everyday language of sacrament versus ordinance to be? Would you agree with this? This is the common difference. Would you have known that before we read this? Okay. I don't know that a lot of people make the distinction. I think there is a distinction to be made, but I think most people don't necessarily make that distinction. Yes. This just goes to how language is conveyed. I mean, now ordinance is viewed by many in the same way that sacraments was in a different thing. So this is just a, a changing of language. I was about to suggest that. Do you think some people actually take the ordinances and feel that they have some supernatural magical power that if you do them you get cleansed and if you don't you don't can you be saved without being dunked some people don't believe you can Mm -hmm. you actually have to go through that in order to be saved um a sacrament or in some cases way people conceive of ordinances is some type of mystical magical process in which divine power gets infused into the person because of the symbolic act Sounds like hocus pocus, doesn't it? Well, I use that because according to the Oxford English Dictionary, and I, I put the reference in the notes for who, those who'd like to read it, um, the term hocus pocus is a term used by jugglers and, jugglers and magicians to make things appear and disappear, and it is thought to have its origins in the Latin hocus corpus, 
Hocest corpus was what the priest says when he puts the Eucharist, the, the wafer, in your mouth. Hocest corpus, the body of Christ. And it got c- twisted in the Dark Ages by the magicians to hocus pocus. So, hocus And so I put, the, I put the Oxford English Dictionary reference, so if you'd like to get that reference, it's in the notes. Um, do symbols have the ability to infuse grace? Does, does the symbol possess some power or ability to change the life? Only if you understand what the symbol is talking about. Yeah, but, but the symbol itself, does it inherently possess some power that if you partake of it, there's power coming from the symbol? If I eat this little wafer, if I wash with this water, does it have some power to transform me into Christ-likeness? Yes. No, I, I always like to use the association to get the cart before the horse. If you have Christ in your life and you turn your life over to him, then certain things are going to be a result of your life. And so what I say is, is that you've accepted Christ's grace into your life. And then these ordinances, these things are what you do to express that. So, yes, your life is changed, but not because of the ordinances, but because you accepted Christ in your life. Okay, so so you would agree then that the ordinance itself doesn't have any... No. power in it. It's not magical, mystical. Because you have become changed. Sure, no, I get that. I get that very much. I think we all agree with that. What if a person believes in the symbol, the ritual? Can the symbols, if believed in, actually result in transformation in the function in the person, including biological changes in neurochemistry? Yes. Have you heard of the placebo-nocebo effect? Placebo effect, you believe something good, you take it, you've got actually neurobiologic changes that happen. Endorphins release, enkephalins, uh, natural create opiates happen, you get pain relief, dopamines go up, you get better mood if you believe something positive is happening. Conversely, if you believe you're cursed, you get suppression of these things, you actually get inflammatory cascades, you get inflammatory cytokines going, you actually get damaged neurobiologically. You, believing in the curse can actually have physiological negatives to you. Uh, in an article published in 2002 in the American Journal of Public Health, uh, the article is titled Voodoo Death. It's documented uh, throughout uh, various cultures of the world that people can die based on a curse. Called boning. Wave a bone at somebody. I'm going to read to you some sections out of the article. In Brown's New Zealand and its Aborigines, that's a book, there is an account of a Mori woman who, having eaten some fruit, was told that it had been taken from a tabooed place. She explained that the sanctity of the chief had been profaned and that his spirit would kill her. This incident occurred in the afternoon. The next day, about 12 o'clock, she was dead. At a mission at Mona Mona in North Queensland, there uh, were, were many native converts, but on the outskirts of the mission was a group of non-converts, including Nebo, a famous witch doctor. The chief helper of the missionary was Rob, a native who had been converted. When Dr. Lambert arrived at the mission, he learned that Rob was in distress and that the missionary wanted him examined. Dr. Lambert made the examination and found no fever, no complaints of pain, no symptoms or signs of disease. He was impressed, however, by the obvious indications that Rob was seriously ill and extremely weak. From the missionary, he learned that Rob had had a bone pointed at him by Nebo and was convinced that, in consequence, he must die. Thereupon, Dr. Lambert and the missionary went for Nebo, threatened him sharply that his supply of food would be shut off if anything happened to Rob and that he and his people would be driven away from the mission. At once, Nebo agreed to agreed with them to see Rob. He leaned over Rob's bed and told the sick man that it was all a mistake, a mere joke, indeed, that he had not pointed a bone at him at all. The relief, Dr. Lambert testifies, was almost instantaneous. That evening, Rob was back at work, quite happy again, in full possession of his physical strength. 
In an article which included a section on death from the malignant psychic influences, Dr. Cleland mentions a fine, robust tribesman in central Australia who was injured in the fleshy part of his thigh by a spear that had been enchanted. The man slowly pined away and died without any surgical complications which could be detected. Dr. Cleveland cites a number of physicians who have referred to the fatal effects of bone pointing and other terrifying acts. In his letter uh, to me, he wrote, Poisoning is, I think, entirely ruled out in such cases among the Australian natives. There are very few poisonous plants available, and I doubt they ever entered their mind to use them. Evidence of the possibility of a fatal outcome for profound emotional strain was reported by Mira in recounting his experiences as a psychiatrist in the Spanish War, 1936 to 1939. In patients who suffered from what he called malignant anxiety, he observed signs of anguish and perplexity accompanied by a permanently rapid pulse of more than 120 beats per minute and a very rapid respiration three times the normal resting rate. These conditions indicated a perturbed state deeply involving the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, as uh, predisposing conditions, uh, Myra uh, mentioned a previously uh, a previous liability of the sympathetic system and a severe mental shock experience in conditions of physical exhaustion due to lack of food, fatigue, and sleep. They go on to say that in the condition where you have this shock and you have uh, then become so stressed that you stop eating and stop drinking, they, even though there's no focal symptoms, uh, there are fatal cases occur within three to four days. That people die in three to four days from this. And this was uh, not from being cursed. This was from the stress of combat. Um, and that post-mortem examination revealed brain hemorrhages in some cases, um, but accepting an increased pressure, the cerebral final, spinal fluid uh, was normal. So... Dr. Um, Martin Samuels, world-renowned neurologist from Harvard University, wrote an article published in uh, the journal Circulation entitled Contemporary Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine, the Brain-Heart Connection. In the article, he wrote, Evidence has accumulated to support Dr. Cooper's concept that voodoo death is, in fact, a real phenomenon, but far from being limited to ancient peoples, may be basic biological principles that provide an important uh, clue to the understanding of this phenomena of sudden death in modern society, as well as providing a window into the world of neurovisceral disease, also known as psychosomatic illness. Uh, George Engel collected 160 counts of lay, in the lay press of sudden death that were attributed to disruptive life events. He found that such events could be divided into eight categories. The impact of the collapse or death of a close person. And any of you work in healthcare. No, when you've taught in school that uh, when you break the news to somebody, um, you have to be very careful. Sometimes people can die when they hear their loved one has died. And this is uh, the occasion here, collapse or death of a loved one. Or uh, during acute grief, second one. Third, on threat of loss of a close person. Uh, fourth, during mourning or on an anniversary. Fifth, on loss of status or self-esteem. Sixth, personal danger or threat of injury. That would be like the curse. Uh, after uh, seven, after the danger is over, and eight, reunion, triumph, or happy ending. Common to all is that they they involve events impossible for the victim to ignore, and to which they respond. The response is overwhelming excitation, giving up, or both. So, what do you think about this idea? A ritual, including a cur- ritual curse, could actually physiologically change somebody. Any examples in scripture? How about Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira, confronted by the Apostle Peter. Which, who confronted with the truth, and they had a sudden event where they died. 
What does scripture say about Satan's power? He has the power of what? According to Hebrews 2.14. He has the power of death. Satan has the power of death. And what is that power? He's the father of lies. As he gets us to believe lies, falsehoods, he can exert power over us. We believe a lie. We believe we've been cursed. Then suddenly there's power being exerted over us. What did Jesus say would set us free? You know the truth. The truth is healing. The truth is restorative. The truth sets us free. Um, In the bottom of the lesson, it says, however much importance we place on the ordinances, we must always remember that these are not conduits of grace or acts by which we earn salvation or gain merit before God. Sin and what it has done to us is far too serious a matter for rituals, even those instituted by Christ himself, to be able to redeem us. Any thoughts about that? I want to jump to Wednesday's lesson. Yes. When you were going through all those examples of people that died from believing they'd been cursed, my mind was fast-forwarding to the the time of the end when the wicked stand before stand before truth and have the truth of their condition and and et cetera revealed. And what would happen then? I, I think that's a great parallel. I think that that is going to be for some the reason that they they cease to exist. Yeah. Not only that, not that people don't feel like they've been cursed, but what if they believe that. God. Exactly. They don't obey. Exactly. What would happen, you guys? Think this through with me now. What do you think would happen if we if we plotted to enact something where this a person we're going to perpetrate this upon does not know it's all an act? They, they they think it's real. And what we what we do is we dress up like some form of of a terrorist group. We grab somebody violently against their will. We take them in a helicopter and we fly them. Two, three thousand feet up into the air, uh, manacled, uh, shala- uh, together, shackled, and then and then we put a hood over them, and then and then while we put the hood over them, the, the pilot after the hood's over comes down to about three feet off the ground, and there's a and there's an air mattress out here, and, and we shove them out of the air mattress, uh, shove them out three feet onto the air mattress. What do you think would happen? But but it was only a three foot drop onto an air mattress. You see. This is, I think, this is a small example of what the wicked may be perceiving at the end of time when they come face to face with the judgment. Yes. So if these rituals and ordinances and symbols are an expression of our, uh, an outgrowth of our faith. They can be. uh, Can be. Okay. Does it matter then who administers them? What do you all think? Does it matter who administers them? Well, in fact, let's go into the, let's go into the Wednesday's lesson because it deals with the communion uh, and the festival of the communion. And it replaced, the festival of the communion replaced what? Passover. Passover, right. Any, anybody want to comment on the symbols of the Passover or we can come back to that and talk about that later? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Okay. So I got emailed this week a link, which I put in the notes for those who'd like to watch it. Um, it's an amazing discoveries discussion between a Catholic priest and a, and a Protestant theologian on the Eucharist and transubstantiation. Hmm. Do you, anybody know what transubstantiation is? Transubstantiation is the doctrine of the Catholic Church that when the priest blesses the wafer, it becomes actually holy and it is to be worshipped as Christ because it's now the body of Christ. And when you swallow it, it actually transubstantiates and is no longer a wafer made by man, but actually becomes a piece of the actual human flesh of Christ. 
Okay. Okay. That's that's the doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, and they and, and it was very interesting. They went back and forth, and they went back and forth. And the Catholic priest position is yes, it has to be administered by a priest. Okay, and 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 the purpose and and the and the argument the the, the Protestant the Catholic they would argue things like um, you know Christ was sacrificed once and for all for the Protestant, and and uh, and the, and the, his blood is not shed again and again, and and it doesn't have to be a priest. And these were arguing these things back and forth. But here's where it really the rubber hits the road for me. This is a quote from the Catholic priest explaining. They at, they at, the question was, you know, you talk about this being a bloodless sacrifice uh, because the wafer doesn't have blood. It said, how, how does that work when it's by the shedding of blood? That, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, okay? And they quote that. And so this is the answer. It says, there are two elements to any sacrifice, the, emula- the immolation and offering. Immolation is a word that means the actual bloody death, where you actually take the knife, cut the throat of the animal, you immolate it. Okay, that's the killing of the animal. So Christ on the cross, his crucifixion is the immolation portion. And then after the, the animal's dead, there is the offering portion, where the animal was, was cut up and then offered on the, on the, on the, on the altar. Okay? So they break it down into the killing portion and then the offering portion. And they say Christ was immolated or killed once and for all. But the offering, this is a quote now, so the immolation is a bloody death. The lamb is slain. What is precious about that is the life in the blood of the lamb is precious, and that pays back God. That's how the Old Testament rituals used to work. The immolation happened once, but the offering is something Christ does for all eternity. He is right now in the presence of the Father, in the Holy of Holies, in the eternal presence, offering himself to the Father for the forgiveness of our sins. Christ isn't killed again and again and again. He is offered in the Eucharist in the same eternal presence as Christ offers himself. The priest said, it was in the offering of the sacrifice over and over again that the sins were paid for. So each time we sin, we must go to Mass, take the Eucharist, and in taking the Eucharist, Christ offers himself to the Father to pay for those sins that we have done since our last Mass. And so he was only crucified once, but the sins get paid for over and over again as we continue to commit sin. How do you think the Protestant theologian responded? With agreement. Oh, no, he didn't agree. He didn't agree. The Protestant theologian responded with the argument that Christ is not in heaven offering his sacrifice over and over again. He's in heaven offering his merits to the Father over and over again. So in the Protestant theologian, each time we sin, we don't need to go to a priest and take mass to have Christ's sacrifice presented to the Father to pay back our sins. Our sins were paid for, past, present, and future, at the cross. So now, uh, when we sin, we go to Christ who presents his merits to the Father, reminding the Father that he has already paid for our sins so the Father can forgive us and not punish us. So there's no difference. Uh, the meaning is the same. Do you see Satan laughing? He's laughing, guys. This is hysterical. He has got these two major groups arguing over a pagan god. A pagan god. A pagan god construct. Both of them have a god who's going to kill you if you don't have something done to him to pay him off so he won't kill you. This is paganism. So what's the problem? Well, Daniel 7 prophesied this was going to happen. Said there was a little horn power was going to come seek to change God's law. Mm-hmm. And, how, and how did it change God's law? By getting us 
to do what? What, 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 what is perpetrated upon the whole vast world of Christianity, Protestant, Catholic alike, they all have accepted this change in the law. What is it? Anybody tell me? That it's enacted. That's an enacted and imposed law rather than the law of love, which originates in God's character, has no beginning, and it's the principle upon which life is constructed. God built his universe to run in harmony with him. That's how it's built. Deviations from the design protocols, life doesn't exist that way because it's built to operate only in harmony with God and his nature and his character of love. We've used the example in here over and over again. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide, and plants give back oxygen to you. This is how it was built. And if you break that law, sorry, tie plastic back over your head, life's not going to operate anymore. That's how God built things. The sin is transgression of the law, or stepping outside the way God built things, and the wages of sin is death. Life doesn't work there. It's very simple, very straightforward. But the, the, the little horn power has gotten the, the world to accept God is like a Roman emperor. And like a Roman emperor, he puts laws upon his subjects. And, and, and as the ruling authority who creates laws to govern his subjects, he now is the great enforcer of law. And when you break this law, it's not incompatible with life, like the design protocols are. No, this is a rebellious act that shows no respect for the person who's put these laws in charge. And in order to be holy and just, he must punish you for breaking those laws. In this model, Christ comes as the Father's agency to heal and restore, to fix what was wrong with mankind and put us back in, at one minute, in unity with God. In this model, Christ comes to pay the legal penalty to prevent God from killing us. Yes? To me, it's the difference between love and fear. There's no question. This is a fear-based model. This is a love-based model. Yes? The theologians that uh, promoted this idea were first trained as lawyers. So they use lawyers' terminology and ideas to explain theology. Actually, he's right. The, the, the theologians back in the dark ages who came up with the penal substitution theology were actually lawyers before they were theologians. Yeah. And that's exactly right. And they came up with this penal substitutionary thing to fit human law, human governments. Uh, and if you just start your computer running through Scripture, my kingdom is not of this world. Correct. My ways are not your ways. I don't operate like you operate. The kingdoms of the world are beasts in symbolism. Christ is a lamb. There is a diametrically opposed methodology. And what, what, what Christianity has done, it has taken Rome and projected Rome into heaven and orchestrated a governmental system that operates just like Rome. That's what they've done. He's a power broker who imposes his rule over and punishes for disobedience. Yes? Why does... That method and that uh, uh, vision of how things work, in other words, the false way, the imposed way, why does that hold power? Why do people believe it? Well, because, number one, they're indoctrinated with it from birth in their society, in their homes, in their schools, in their churches, in their governments, in their, and, and, and there's a certain quid pro quo fairness that we have because we come to the world oriented with a self self-oriented sense. It's not fair for you to do this. I, I had a, and it could be even on non-criminal things. I had a patient who uh, was working at a job, and at her job, there was a co-worker, and she was like a, an administrative assistant for somebody, and there was a co-worker as administrative assistant for somebody else. And so... And, and the coworker would do her nails during work, would listen to music, would, would send emails, would surf the internet, okay, and not do her job. 
And, and my patient was just eaten up with this. It was just eating her up in frustration and anger. And so I asked a couple of questions. I said, when she doesn't do her job, when she comes to work and doesn't do her job, does that mean you have to do more? That, that what she's not doing comes up to you, and so it actually is making your day hard? No, no. She works for somebody else, so if she doesn't do it, it doesn't come to me. Okay, so your job doesn't get worse. So why does this? Well, it's not fair. I have to work all day. I, I have to work all day. She gets to play around. It's not fair. You know what I said to her? I said, let me ask you this question. Pardon? What? Get over it. Get over it. Not in so many words. <laughs> what, I, what I said was this. Let's imagine right now we made a deal. Uh, and I asked you, hey, I'd give you 100 bucks if you wash my car. And you agreed. You said, oh, sure, I'd like to do that. That's, I need the 100 bucks. I said, so, so I give you the 100 bucks, and you leave, and you don't wash my car. You take the 100 bucks, but you don't do it. How are you going to feel about that? Oh, I, I wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't live with I couldn't live with it. I'd feel guilty. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't be at peace. I said, so how about you go to work, and you accept a, a weekly paycheck from a, an employer to do a certain job, but then you don't do the job? How are you going to feel about that? I said, you're jealous because you think she's getting a better deal than you. She's searing her conscience, warping her character, destroying her soul. She's not getting a better deal than you. You're getting the better deal because you're fulfilling your duties and responsibilities. Your conscience is clear. The light went off for her and she was no longer jealous of that person. One of the reasons people like this model is because they're selfish. They want to see someone pay. They want to get their pound of flesh. And so they like this model. I've had Christian theologians talk about they're looking forward to the day to stand on that wall and see Hitler suffer for what he did. Yes, Tim. Uh, So to kind of go along with that, um, when the the serpent told them, to Adam and Eve, that they would not surely die in the dead day of the fruit, uh, obviously they didn't drop physically dead. Was there a death that occurred when they partook? Yeah, they actually, they actually, it says dying, they would die. It doesn't say in the day you eat, you will die. It says in the day you eat, dying, you will die. Okay? So what that means is, and what's exactly what's happened is, once they took, partook of the fruit, they disconnected themselves from God. And there's been a slow, gradual decay of entropy, and they began to die that very day. It didn't say they would die that day. How about spiritually, though? That's what I'm referring to. And what do you think spiritual is? This is a mystical. Now we're back into hocus pocus. And when people say they die spiritually... Do you think there is some part of you that dies separate from your body? See, this is what this, I, I deal with a lot of Christian mental health providers, and sometimes they struggle because they have sometimes a belief that there's some part of you that operates outside your brain. That when you die, there's a part that floats around. What is spiritual death? The death of your character, like, like the coworker who wasn't doing their work, their character was slowly dying. Um, but that happens physically as well as in your thought processes. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, I think spiritual death is the is, is the is the um, if we want to use that terminology, it is the destruction of the abilities and faculties of the mind to appreciate truth and, re- and respond to love. That's what that is. And that didn't happen that day. 
So what did happen to Adam and Eve on that day? What happened in that day is their methodology and motives were changed. They were no longer beings operating on God's law of love. The law of love had been replaced with fear and selfishness. And fear and selfishness became the primary motive operandi in their heart, even though Adam was aware this wasn't, hey, I don't want to live like this. Hey, this isn't what I want. No, I don't want to live in fear. Oh, I'd like to go back. I'd like to go back the way things were. See, there wasn't some darkness in Adam's mind where he said, yeah, this is, the, this is better. And there are people today who are so darkened in sin, they actually think sinful living is better than holy living. Adam wasn't that way. Even Adam understood instantly, no, this is not a better living. So they weren't spiritually dead. They were, though, infected or changed, and they were no longer capable of living in harmony, even though they would like to. They had, their natures were different. And, and, and if you want to get that root, if you want to feel it in yourself, that, that root is, is in, in the world today described as survival of the fittest. It is that drive to protect yourself. So somebody's got their hands around your throat and they're choking you. And you're starting to turn blue. And you've got a, a gun in your hand. What are you, what are you going to be tempted? Would there be a strong urge to pull that trigger? Where's that urge coming from? Sure. That need to survive. That is, that is not natural to the human condition. It's not natural. It's an infection. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. Those that are ready to meet Christ when he comes, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. There's something changed in the mode. So what happened to Adam and Eve that day, is, in my view, is that their, their primary mode of operating was switched from love and self-sacrifice to fear, to fear and selfishness. And I think, Russell, you had your hand up? No, okay, go ahead. Sin has changed humans, has changed me. It hasn't changed God. So if I truly believe that God is the one to be feared, I need someone to face God for me. But if God truly was not changed, then Christ is sitting by his right hand, and together they are Christ the Son and the Father, are with them, pleading for us. And that's what it says in, 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 in Romans chapter 8. Right. Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He would not spare some, but gave him up. How will he not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus. He is at the Father's right hand and is also right. interceding for us. In addition to the, the Father's interceding for us, and so is Christ. Christ is there doing it too. But we have this, the, 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 back to the point that I wanted to make here, though, with this, with this ritual. Oh, yes, in the back. When Christ comes, our characters will be changed from sinful nature to that of a holy nature. Why wasn't Adam, why couldn't Adam be changed at that time back to a holy nature? Our actually, actually, our characters won't be changed when Christ comes. Our characters will be changed before Christ comes. What happens is our physiology changes when Christ comes. And that day our mortal puts on immortality and our corruption puts on incorruption. And so that biology, the genetics that, we've, that we're struggled with, that tempt us with fear and selfishness will be gone. But our characters have already been transformed prior to his coming. You have the mind of Christ. I'll write my law on your hearts and minds. Uh, the, the heart of stone will be removed, the heart of flesh put in. You'll be so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, you cannot be moved. You'll be sealed of the Holy Spirit. All this is about character transformation. The character changes now. We get physiological change then. And why couldn't Adam do it? And my view, this this goes right to the model of what what we talk about. Christ came and did what humans could not do for themselves. Christ was a unique being. 
Adam was formed out of dust, perfect and sinless. Eve taken from Adam's side, perfect and sinless. You and I came from a sinful mother and a sinful father, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51. Jesus didn't come in, his humanity didn't come in any of those ways. He didn't come out of the dust. His humanity wasn't formed new. He didn't come from the rib of a sinless being. He also didn't come from two sinful parents. Notice, Jesus is unique. Jesus came from a sinful mother, but his father was the Holy Spirit. So in Jesus, there is this unique blending of our defective condition, our terminal state he took upon himself. But in the mind and character of Christ, uh, there was perfect love operating. The law of God was not broken. So in the, in the human brain of Jesus Christ, those two principles were actually able to ward out. And you can see this through his life, and you can see this through the, uh, the experience in the desert, and you can see this at Gethsemane, and you can see this at the cross, that Christ was tempted in every way, just like we are, it says in Scripture, yet without sin. In, in James 1, it says we're tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Internal to us is what we're doing. And Christ had a humanity that could tempt him to act to save self. And you see in Gethsemane in his anguish, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's experienced human emotions that are tempting him to act in which direction? Save to save self. Okay, This is that selfish, inherent drive that we live with. And it says it's so overwhelming, I'm collapsing to die. It's how intense this, this, this pull is on me. But not my will be done, thy will be done. No one can take my life, I will give it freely. So in the human brain of Jesus Christ, we have a human brain that was tempted with the full force of what we're tempted with, but never even in thought gave into it. He didn't even think he wished they were gone. He loved them to the end. And so in the being of Jesus Christ, we have a human being that fulfills what God created Adam to be. And that's why it says in Romans 5.8, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Get your mind around that wording. Hebrews 5.8, once he was made perfect. This is why he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He developed in his human brain the perfection of humanity. Prior to the cross, Prior to Christ's victory, there was human godly nature, excuse me, there was perfect godly nature, there was perfect angelic nature, there was perfect nature of other orders, but it was Christ who achieved perfect human nature. And then Christ becomes the source of salvation. And my view is that the Holy Spirit takes all that Christ has achieved and literally reproduces that character in us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature, Peter says, writes the law on the heart and mind. We are transformed inwardly through the work of the Holy Spirit as he takes what Christ has done and makes it known to us. Yes? Um, I don't understand what it means by he grew in favor with God and man. I can certainly see how he grew in favor with God, but it seemed like as his life progressed, more and more men began to hate him. I guess it depends on which man you're talking about. I, I really appreciate him. Yeah. It really does depend on which man you're talking about. I saw another hand. Tim. I guess what I was getting back to with why this construct holds power, I keep kind of talking on it, but an attitude change happened at the tree when they partook that wasn't necessarily visible. It was sort of an invisible inward thing that happened within them. And so since they didn't physically visibly drop dead, it held a certain power because Satan could say, look, you didn't die. 
No, I, I think that's exactly right. It was believing the lies about God that changed them. Uh, God, I no longer trust you. Now I'm afraid of you. And they've turned southward because they no longer trusted God with their lives. I think that's right because they believed God was what Satan said he was. And it was those lies that led to those, those behaviors. Yes, Lisa. Um, when you're converted, um, you decide that you want to live like Christ did. And so as you open your heart and the Holy Spirit comes in. Is, are you then in the position that Christ was in with uh, a selfish spirit and a Holy Spirit warring in your mind and you're constantly denying the selfish spirit and so it dies eventually and eventually is replaced by the Holy Spirit's will? Yeah, I don't like the word spirit, but... Uh, cause, well, whatever you want to call yeah. it. But, but, and I wouldn't, I would say we are, uh, entering into that, that relationship, saving relationship with Christ. But the difference between us and Christ is that Christ had no internal habit patterns of neurological pathways of old behaviors that would tempt him, uh, down those trails. We do. So even when we're converted and we do have the Holy Spirit working in to give us new motives, new desires, new attitudes, we will have conditioned responses. We will have habit patterns. We have preconceived ideas that are not eliminated yet. Attitudes that we've held for years that are still there, even though we have a new heart and want to do better. And this is what Romans seven is about when Paul says, you know, that which I want to do, I'm not doing it. But the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing at times, even though my, in my mind, I want to do the right thing, but sometimes I find myself doing the wrong thing. He's telling us that in conversion, our heart of hearts wants to do what's right, but sometimes we still have conditioned responses, habit patterns, and things that can hit us on the blind side we don't even anticipate, and we find ourselves snapping off or doing something we didn't mean to do, but we are not lost or cast off at that point. It just means that there is more work of cleaning up the inward man, more work of of growing in grace, and eventually those neural circuits will be downgraded and pruned back as we don't fire them anymore. Yes, Christ didn't have to prune back any defective circuits. So when Jesus comes, what happens to that side of our character? Is it perfect by the time Jesus gets here, or is it changed at that time? We get new brains, and so those circuits will be gone. We get new brains. We're not going to have these defective brains and these defective genetics. We're not going to have all the weaknesses we have now. But what, what won't change is the hard attitude of complete and perfect trust in God. And if you notice what perfection in Scripture is, and, and I almost hear the questions going down this line, the questions about behavior, it's the, the, the issue of Scripture is not about behavior. The issue of Scripture is about perfect love. It's about do you love God and love others more than self? Here are they that do not love their life so much as strength from death. When Christ talked about be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, the context, if you read the verses, are love your neighbor, love others, do good. And so it's not that you have a perfect biology where you never make a mistake. It's that you have a perfect heart where you never want to make a mistake. And when you do make a mistake, you're grieved in your heart and you regret it. And you say, oh man, I am so weak. Who's going to save me from this miserable body of death? Oh Lord, I don't want to be this way. So your heart is right with God, even though your biology may not be. Thank you for clarifying. Yes. Way in the back. Oh, just the one obvious thing when they sinned was that the robe of light was gone and then in a few minutes they're running and hiding and then in a few minutes they're blamed blame game goes. Yes, and so that, so thank you. The robe of light being gone reveals their actions severed them from their connection from God. Their blame game reveals that their motives are no longer selfless, but selfish. So there's something internal changed with them. I want to jump to finish on with this to the, to the baptism one, yes. Just your text reference was five, uh, Romans 5, it's, it's Hebrews 5, 9. Did I say Hebrews? Did I say Romans? Yeah. Thank you for correcting that, because in my mind I was thinking Hebrews. Yeah, Hebrews, five. Hebrews 5, 8, 9, yes. Thank you. 
same. So that's, uh, once he was made perfect, he became the source. That's Hebrews 5.8. And I thought I said Hebrews. That's, I, I actually... Second time did yeah. Okay, because you know something? I actually had this discussion with a patient this, this week about they're in a marriage conflict. And, and, uh, and, and once the conflict intentions occur in a marriage, sometimes what happens is they become very legalistic. And every word that comes out of their mouth, it's held against them. And I pointed out, you know, I've gone back and listened to myself on tape, and I will be thinking one thing, one word, and I thought I said that, and, and another word came out of my mouth. I didn't even realize it. I said, now, we have to be gracious enough to allow people to clarify, don't we? Okay, sometimes in a discussion you could say something, and it may be the opposite of what you meant to say. So, anyway, thank you for that. All right, so jump on to um, Monday's lesson. We're going to back up to Monday's lesson. And this is about the ordinance of, no, this is about baptism. This is about baptism. And let's see, it says, baptism symbolizes a covenantal and spiritual relationship with uh, God through Christ. Baptism represents what circumcision represented in the Old Testament. And, uh, and two, baptism symbolizes a transfer of loyalties, one that places a person into a community that is uh, consecrated to the service of Christ. The reception of the Spirit in baptism enables believers to serve the church and work for the salvation of those who are not yet in the faith. Um, it says baptism what circumcision re- represented in the Old Testament. What kind of circumcision do we have today? Circumcision part nine. Romans two twenty nine. I got that one right. <laughs> <laughs> a man is not uh, no a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. Circumcision is the heart by the spirit. In this text, can a ritual act as an infant? result in healing of the character? Only if it's magical. Only if it's magical. Yeah. And if the ritual act was required for salvation in Old Testament times, then what about women? They're out. They're out, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what was the purpose of the act? If you think this through, why circumcision? It's a symbolic act. It doesn't confer salvation. It's been taken over by baptism. What was the benefit? Well, let me just, I'm going to, got just a couple of minutes. I'm going to run through my bullets real quick. Uh, Walking around in the community, can you tell who's been circumcised and who's not? (laughs) Depends on the community, okay? (laughs) Well... None of the communities I've walked around in, let's put it that way. But you have been living in Florida, so maybe they do things different down there. <laughs> okay? Alrighty. Um, and the reason why is because the change is in, in a, a very private part, port, portion that's not viewed publicly. Walking around the community, can you tell who's been circumcised in heart? No. By walking around the community. Can you? Really? Wow, man looks on the outward appearance, but Lord looks on the heart. I'm going to suggest you can't. Um, I, I'm going to suggest you think we think we can. We think we can, but we can't. There are many people who can do lots of good things altruistically for a community, selfishly. Politicians are always out there shaking baby, you know, kissing babies, shaking hands, and building houses for the homeless and feeding at the soup kitchen. Okay. <laughs> baby shaking syndrome, yeah. <laughs> Really? How many of you felt that this last few weeks? <laughs> okay. Uh, circumcision, would it be painful? Yes. Is conversion painful? Yes. Did people circumcise themselves? Mm. Do we cut the ties of our own heart? 
do we? Circumcision typically happened in infants. We are to have hearts cut away from the ties of the world when we are bathed in Christ, when we are reborn into his kingdom. That's when the, the cut and circumcision of the heart is supposed to take place. Some were, however, circumcised as adults. Was it harder? Some are in the church for years before their hearts become circumcised. Is it often harder? Yes, it is. And, and symbolically, was God using this as a final last helpful step for the Jews who would be faced with all the fertility cults. And as they go to worship with the fertility cults, the cult prostitute says, oh, I see you're a Jew. No, I shouldn't be here. What about baptism? If, it's, if, if, if the lesson is right and baptism takes the place of circumcision and circumcision happened on infants, then why don't we baptize infants? This is the Catholic argument. Or dedicate them. This is the Catholic argument that baptism took the place of circumcision and therefore we baptize infants. This is out of the Catholic Catechism, page 1250. Born with a fallen human nature and tainted by original sin, children also have need of the new birth. In baptism, to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God, to which all men are called. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. This is, the, this is what they teach. What's true about that statement and what are the problems in that statement? And we'll finish with this. Truth, that since Adam, all humanity has fallen and born with a condition they didn't choose that operates outside God's design and it's not remedy, result in death. That's true. We're born in sin, conceived in it. That's true. Problem, a ritual done by the church with ceremonial water has some transforming healing or saving power that the problem of sin is something that can be, uh, that, that can be overcome in the heart and mind of this new being by water being sprinkled on them. That's a problem for me. Problem, the idea that a ritual done by the church to a child who is unaware results in rebirth. Problem, if the ritual isn't performed and the child dies, their salvation is in jeopardy. What does that say about God? See, this goes, it's all operating under that legal model. You see, legally you have to have this done. It's like when you get fined, it's imposed law construct, imposed law construct, you've broken the law, and the law requires a certain payment, and if you don't get that payment made, it doesn't matter how old you are, the payment has to be made. Law construct. If you, other law construct things operate differently. Things operate differently. So I would encourage you to step back as you look at the rites and rituals and ask and everyone you participate in, what is the meaning? What does it say about God? What's its purpose? What am I saying when I participate in this? And with ultimately with baptism, baptism is the immersion of your mind into, the, into God via the Holy Spirit. It's having your mind washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. That's baptism. And then symbolically, after experiencing that, you can take the public stand and immerse yourself in water to say, my mind and soul have been immersed in God's love via the working of the Holy Spirit. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of reality, that you're a God of truth, that you uh, reach us where we are. And sometimes in our, in our difficulties and, and, and darkened minds, you've reached down to give us symbols to help us, to help us learn, 
to help us uh, to join together in a unity, to help us understand more of what you're trying to accomplish in us. Don't let us get stuck on the symbols, Lord. Open our minds to understand the truth behind them, that we can experience the reality of your presence, the reality of your, your transforming power working in our hearts, that we can be washed and remade in your image internally, in mind, heart, motive, and deed. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.